welcome you to FBC. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and we're just we're so glad that you're with us this morning, and that we together can uh, look to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, continuing this sermon series that we've been in for some time now. And uh, as you find that, um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And John chapter 19 specifically, we thank you for uh, just the message of the cross that we this morning get to look directly at the work of Christ crucified, that we are invited to reflect on all that it means, what it tells us about you, about our lives, about the world, about eternity. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us. We need your help, Lord, to uh, be shaped and uh, transformed into the image of your Son. Would you help us understand what we read? Would you help us apply it to our lives? We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, often in life, uh, I've found that we don't necessarily need new information. We instead need to be reminded of or uh, taught to properly apply information that we already have. For example, recently I started eating breakfast regularly. True story. I will wake up and I've been diligent to have a bowl of oatmeal loaded up with raisins and brown sugar and sometimes a dollop of peanut butter in there and milk and mix it all up and leave. And it's, it's been amazing, the results. Before, I would simply, you know, run out of the house off to a meeting or to the office and maybe grab a cup of coffee while I'm out or a granola bar or something small like that. But by lunchtime, I'm ravenous. I'm so hungry. By the end of the day, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm lacking energy. I'm hangry. Some of you have been there, right? I'm just eating junk food, whatever I can get my hands on. I'm not disciplined because I didn't start the day right. But now I'm eating breakfast and I feel less hungry and I'm not as hangry. And I feel like a, a better representative of Jesus because of that. And I told Amber, hey, you know, I'm trying something new. It's called eating breakfast. <laughs> And she responds with, mm-hmm. you know, that's not really a novel concept, right? E- eating breakfast isn't something that, uh, that you just came up with, something, not something that you just recently heard about, right? Most of us from the time that we are children hear about the importance of a, a healthy and a strong breakfast to start the day. It just took me until my you know, 30s to practice that. And so this morning, as uh, we heard in the reading, we're looking to uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And for most of us, I'd imagine that the statement, Jesus died on the cross for us, is not new information, right? Most of us have heard that before, are aware of that concept. Maybe for some of us, this is brand new, and that's exciting, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. But for, for many of us, again, it's not necessarily new information, But what we do need is a reminder of the implications of this information that we already have. What we need is to properly understand and apply this information that we already have to our lives. And so as we look to the cross this morning, really the center of our faith and our message as a church, as Christians, 
Uh, We celebrate this every week, and yet we are asking the Lord to give us a renewed sense of awe and joy and gratitude for all that it means. And so look again with me at verse 17. It says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So a few movements to the message this morning. And the first is we need to reflect on a crucified king. Jesus of Nazareth has been arrested. He's been uh, betrayed, then arrested, then brought before Jewish leaders of the day, then passed on to uh, the governor Pilate, a Roman representative there in Judea. And we've seen this uh, back and forth for the past few weeks, Jesus on trial, essentially, and ultimately he's condemned to be crucified. Now, it was normal for condemned criminals to carry their own cross. And so the text tells us he carries this horizontal cross beam through a crowd likely of onlookers. It was a public display as the victim of crucifixion would be stripped naked and paraded to their death, really as a warning to anyone nearby who was watching. And so Jesus is led outside the city to the place of the skull, Golgotha, or in Latin, Calvary. There's a common place of execution. And you notice simply in verse 18 that the text tells us there they crucified him. But there's not much detail given in terms of what that would mean because the original first century audience would all know what a crucifixion would entail. They knew what crucifixion was. They knew what sort of horrific death this would be for Jesus. But in my study this week, as I was reading scholars and commentaries on this text and the reality of crucifixion, I admit to you, it was, it was pretty hard to take in. It was pretty uh, unsettling and disturbing to read these detailed accounts of what uh, crucif- crucifixion was. Uh, the horror of a death like this. And sometimes we hear about crucifixion or we see, you know, a pretty cross that's nice and, and, and sanitized. We're, so we're kind of far removed from what exactly that would mean. And so we don't always grasp all that was wrapped up in it. And so I want to briefly summarize the process for us uh, as one scholar. I'm just going to read straight out of this commentary. One New Testament scholar just describes the process so that we're all brought up to speed, reminded of what this would mean. It says this, the criminal would be flogged and then forced to carry his own crossbeam to the place of the execution, often scourged on the way, both of which were intended to torture the criminal before the crucifixion itself. If not already fully stripped, the criminal would have his clothing removed and confiscated, thus stripped of both possessions and honor. And then the criminal would normally be fastened to the cross with either ropes or nails through the wrist. In Roman crucifixion, the feet of the victim were often fastened to the cross as well. The nails were typically five to seven inches in length, long enough to penetrate both the flesh and bone and wood of the cross to secure the body to it. 
The upright stake would have been no more than 10 feet high, which had in the middle a small wooden seat and near the top a groove to receive the crossbeam, thus leaving the criminal hanging just above the ground. Once placed on the cross, the body of the criminal was fully accessible to external conditions with scores of flies attracted to the bodily wounds or animals assaulting the feet of the victim. The suffering also would cause severe bodily distortions, including the loss of bodily control and waste, enlarged, swelling body parts. The prisoner attached to the crossbeam would hang in this agonizing position until released by death, which usually came about through difficulty in breathing and stoppage of circulation. The body of the victim was attached to the cross in a manner that facilitated prolonged suffering. If the criminal could lift himself up to get breath, he would survive longer than if the unsupported body was dead weight. Yet to lift oneself was designed to cause severe pain. If death was slow in coming, the end was often hastened by means of clubbing, stabbing, or poison. The normal Roman practice was to leave the body on the cross until it rotted, but Jewish law demanded that the body of a hanging man had to be buried on the day of execution to prevent the land from being defiled. The execution served as a crude form of public entertainment, with the crowds often ridiculing and mocking the victims. So in one sense, the story here is pretty straightforward, right? Jesus is rejected as Messiah by his own people. He's rejected by the Jewish leaders. Some false charges are cooked up against him. Pilate sentences him to death with the pressure of a mob behind him. Jesus is crucified amongst criminals. And the charges against him are surely ironic and mocking coming from the Romans, the king of the Jews, they say. Sarcastically, here is your king. His garments are taken and towards the end, his mother and a few devoted women are at his side as he dies. So the details of the story are fairly simple. And yet, as often is the case, there's much more here than just meets the eye. There's more here going on if we pause long enough to see it. And so we have to consider the bigger picture and what God is telling us through John 19 and consider first who it is that is being crucified. Again, verse 19 tells us, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. See, it was normal again for a criminal to have their crimes or the charges against them posted as they were crucified. This is why they're being crucified. This is a warning in case anyone gets any ideas of trying to do something similar. He claimed to be king, they said. The Jews presented him as an enemy of Rome, of Caesar himself. And you notice the text tells us that the Jewish leaders didn't like the inscription. You see verse 20 to 22. They want Pilate to clarify. No, no, no. It's not that he's a king. It's that he claimed to be the king. So can you, you know, change this inscription? And, you know, Pilate doesn't have like Microsoft Word and an easy printer. They can just like, no, I'll, yeah, I'll switch that out. Let's get a new one up there. He just says, look, I've already written what I've written. Deal with it. It says what it says. 
And you notice verse 20 tells us that it was written in three languages. Many of the Jews read the sign. It says, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now, most will look at that and see, yes, that actually happened. It was written in three languages and, and see also the, the symbolism, the meaning behind that reality. Aramaic being the common language there in, in Judea, Latin, the official language of the Roman army and much of Rome, while Greek was the most common language of the people throughout the empire and the known world. And so here Jesus' kingship is being declared to the whole world. He's not just king of the Jews. He's the king of all the earth. He's not really just an earthly king either. He's eternal God. He's king of the universe. It all belongs to him. And yet, as we reflect on that, Jesus, the king, king of the Jews, king of the world, king of the universe, we have in the text what really appears like an oxymoron. Right? Two ideas, two words that seem incongruous. Right? They don't go together like awfully good or you know, jumbo shrimp or alone together. Or, you know, insert your example of an oxymoron. King's cross. Right? It's, a, it's a, a paradox, really. King's cross, it seems self-contradictory because kings don't die on crosses and crosses don't hold kings. And yet here we have a king on a cross. And it's the combination of these two ideas, the king and the cross, that we see really who Jesus is and what he came to do. And really the most important message in the book of John and the entire Bible and in the history of the world. So you picked a good Sunday to be here at church. Because this message, a crucified king, it's the center of the gospel. And we're going to unpack the implications of it for us. But first we need to see, I want you to see that this isn't coming out of nowhere. God has has left clues really pointing his people, pointing us in the Old Testament to anticipate a crucified king. And the text actually goes to some lengths to show us that, hey, what's happening here in John chapter 19 is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. I want you to see that in a few different ways. First, look at verse uh, 17. It says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull where he was crucified. Now, again, it was known that criminals carried their own cross to their execution. And so John mentions this detail, but it subtly is pointing us to another reality. And what, what many church fathers, early church fathers, and what even some Jewish scholars saw here was a connection here to the story of Isaac. If you look back to Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 22, there's the story of Abraham being told to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. And ultimately he stopped from doing so. He was tested, his faith was tested by the Lord. But in that story, it was Isaac who had to carry his own wood up to the altar. He had to carry the wood himself along the way. Abraham's response as Isaac asks him, if you remember, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And do you remember what Abraham said to his son? He said, God himself, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. And so in Genesis 22, Isaac 
is spared as a lamb there is found nearby to sacrifice. And now we fast forward to Jesus and like Isaac, he's carrying the wood to the place of sacrifice and execution. He's carrying himself the cross. But unlike Isaac, who is spared, Jesus will go to his death because he is the lamb of God that was provided. Or look at verse 18. It says, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Now here again, in one sense, these are unsurprising details because some scholars will suggest that at Golgotha, there were several stakes in the ground that were just left there because execution there was so frequent. And so whenever crucifixion occurred, the posts would be ready, a criminal would come, or it was not uncommon for criminals to be crucified together, multiple at once. And yet here in this detail, we see again echoes of another Old Testament text. We see Isaiah chapter 53, which is this famous passage about a suffering servant who is pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. Now, John, earlier in chapter 12 of the gospel, quotes from Isaiah 53. He's familiar with the text. And Isaiah 53, verse 12 says of this suffering servant back in the Old Testament, that he would be numbered among transgressors. He would be counted among rebels. He'd be lumped in with the criminals, you could say, even though he was innocent. And so as we're reading along along here in John chapter 19, we have Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 kind of pop up, and we have the suffering servant who is uh, counted amongst the criminals of Isaiah chapter 53 pop up. And look further at verse 23. It says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Again, another detail of crucifixion that would be common or expected soldiers dividing up the garments or the belongings of the criminal. But here again, we see more Old Testament connections. Now, if the previous two connections to Isaac and Genesis 22 and Isaiah chapter 53 felt maybe subtle, like too subtle of an illusion or or mere echoes here in verses 23 and 24, it's made really clear. Because verse 24 says explicitly, do you see it? That this all happened, the casting lots and taking of the garments, it happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. And John then directly quotes from Psalm 22, which is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament, I believe. It's the psalm that starts by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that Jesus would repeat from the cross. Showing us Jesus is the fulfillment of this Psalm, the one who would come and suffer for us. John makes a link very explicit in verse 24 for us. And so you have Genesis 22, you have Isaiah 53, you have Psalm 
22. You have all these details of the crucifixion that were foretold and anticipated. The Lamb of God, the righteous sufferer, the one forsaken for us. These soldiers now are unknowingly participating in the plan of God for redemption. And so even though the story maybe at times to us feels like a tragedy or feels like it's all gone sideways and gotten totally out of control. I mean, the son of God being put to death, you can see in these prophecies and in these old Testament connections that God knows exactly what he's doing. And it's his providence, his plan of redemption unfolding for all the world. So John here in the new Testament regularly will show us that the work of Jesus is not something just out of left field, but it's fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. It's what uh, the Old Testament has been anticipating and preparing us for. And that's actually quite helpful when you go to read your Old Testament, side note here, when you go to read the Old Testament and you're reading through the law of Leviticus or some strange incident in Genesis or in Judges or whatever it may be, there's some stuff in there, right, that makes us go, hold on. What what just happened, right? There's some difficult things to interpret and make sense of sometimes in the Old Testament. We can uh, get a bit lost sometimes if we stay zoomed in or or we helicopter into a verse or a chapter without context or awareness of the bigger picture. But if we remember that there's a bigger picture here, there's a, a bigger story that God is telling and it's pointing to Christ and his work, then when we go to the Old Testament, we can zoom out a little bit and say, well, hold on. Uh, That can actually help me interpret this and make sense of this, what God is up to in the bigger picture. So we see how the Old Testament has been anticipating the work of Christ, but not just the Old Testament. Actually, in the whole uh, Gospel of John that we've been reading for, for months and months and months now, it's been pointing us forward to this moment as well. Right? Earlier, Jesus would speak of his hour. My hour has not yet come. Or as he senses the cross drawing near, he says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. I remember the clues we've seen in John chapter 10, Jesus says he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas, without realizing it, speaks more than he knows. He's pointing to this event and he says that one man would actually die for the people. He doesn't realize it at the time what he's saying, but that's in chapter 11. In John chapter 12, Jesus says that when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Lifted up where? Lifted up onto the cross, we see now. Jesus in John 13, he removes his outer garments and he stoops down to cleanse his disciples and serve them and wash them. And now here, Jesus with his outer garments and all his garments removed, stripped from him, serves his people by dying for them on a cross. Do you see how it's all been leading us to this moment? It's really the heart of what the Bible is trying to tell us. And sometimes again, we miss the forest for the trees. I think many of us, or definitely the outside world, will look at the Bible or what Christians think of the Bible and we say, what's this, this nice little rule book you know, and it tells you what to do and not do. So, you know, like pay your taxes and, you know, be nice to your neighbors and don't, 
you know, shoplift at Rayleigh's. And if you're living in the Old Testament, don't eat bacon and, you know, don't, uh, don't kill anybody. Definitely don't do that. And, you know, be generous and don't lust and definitely no sex before marriage. And, you know, like, let's be clear about those things. And, um, and, and, and we can look at that and say, well, yeah, that's, that's all in there. The, the commands and the laws and absolutely are there. But I want you to see the forest, not just the trees. And if you're here this morning, you're wondering, well, what's the Bible all about? Or what's God really trying to say to me? Well, what's, what's the point? It's, it's that we're being pointed to our great need and our great Savior. Well, that's the center of the message. It's, it's the cross of Christ. It's his life, his death for us. He's the hero of the story. So would you look, would you behold, did you see what God has done for you? So let's unpack that a bit. We have a crucified king and we've, we've seen how the scriptures have been anticipating a crucified king. And now we have to talk about the implications of a crucified king. What does the crucifixion of Jesus mean for us? Well, a few things. First, we need to rethink glory. The crucifixion causes us to rethink glory because think about it, the cross is humanly speaking, it's Jesus' greatest point of rejection and shame. He's mocked, he's, he's beaten, he's stripped naked, he's suffering, he's left to die. I mean, if you were a glorious king or if you were a God, you would demonstrate that by your strength, right? by, by victory in battle. You would show that you were a conqueror. You were stronger than the rest. Others had to submit to you as you exerted your power and glory. And so it was offensive. It was, it was foolish in the mind of an ancient person to consider that, that God would suffer and die on a cross. That God would be treated like a criminal, cast outside of the city, uh, heaped uh, upon him would be shame and insults and dishonor. It made zero sense in the ancient world for someone uh, to see a God doing this. And so in their minds, the cross would be proof that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be clean. Clearly he's not because look at what's happening. And yet, The scriptures tell us that the cross is the brightest shining display of the glory of God. It's on the cross that Jesus is actually exalted and glorified. In chapter 12 of John, Jesus points forward to the cross and he says, and the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. It's on the cross that the glory of God would be most clearly seen. Theologian F.F. Bruce says it well. He says, the crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. So the cross shows us the glory of God. And so we see that God's greatness and his glory is not just seen in his, his power to create and sustain the universe. His glory is not just seen in his omnipresence and his omniscience and his perfection and holiness, as amazing as that all is. No, his greatness and his glory 
is seen in the cross, in his sacrificial love for the world. That on the cross, God himself would carry our shame, our suffering, our death. That he would bear the sins of the world himself so that we would be redeemed. And so we see in the cross the love of God and the power of God and the goodness of God on display as he takes death and brings about life. As he wins by losing, as he heals by being wounded, as he goes down into suffering in order to be exalted into glory. So the cross shows us this is what glory and greatness looks like. As Jesus said, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, you have to be what? A servant, a slave of all, last. And so Jesus shows us that winning in the kingdom often looks like losing to the world. Winning in the kingdom often looks like sacrifice. And so we can look to our suffering then and realize that even suffering and humiliation need not be pointless or an indication of failure. But for us, even our suffering is participation or sharing in the sufferings of Christ, a chance to identify deeply with our savior. Amen. Amen. So the cross calls us to rethink glory and greatness. It also calls us to rethink salvation, to rethink salvation. What does it mean to be saved? How is one saved? See, for those in the first century, many of them would picture salvation as something being delivered from an external Force, maybe the oppressive Romans who are in power. They needed a king to come and establish the kingdom of God and deal with the evildoers and expel the bad guys. And we're righteous because we keep the law and the bad people out there need to be dealt with. And so we're saved from what's out there. That That was a big part of salvation in their minds. Or think about how people today think about salvation. What does it mean to be saved today? I I found it really interesting reading about how how secular people, so non-religious folks in our day, still think about salvation. There's a book uh, by Dan McAdams called The Redemptive Self, which I haven't read. Strong start. (laughs) But I'm going to talk about it anyways. Um, I haven't read it, but I've read summaries of it and, you know, summations of the, the ideas and the concepts there from people who are a lot smarter than me, right? And kind of, you know, condensed it down. And there's just some fascinating ideas that he unpacks in the book. He looks at the stories, the stories that Americans tell, how we make sense of our lives. We have these narratives, how we think about our past and our present and our future, where we're going. And we tell these stories that help us make sense of who we are as a people and individually. And what he points out in this book is that even secular people who aren't religious at all are are drawn to this idea of redemption and salvation, that they're actually Christian contours in the way that they think of themselves and tell their own story. So take the Christian story, for example, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, Secular people will tell their story in the sense of there used to be, we were created good. There was something good in our past that we're longing to get back to, but something went horribly wrong. There was some kind of fall, some kind of issue, some kind of problem, and there needs to be some kind of redemption, some kind of salvation. So they'll take these Christian categories, 
these gospel categories, but they'll answer them quite differently or use different language or ideas that go along with that. And so let me give you an example. Secular people will still naturally know that something's off in the world, right? There's a problem that needs to be fixed in the world and in their lives, but they won't talk about sin. They won't use that concept from scripture, but they'll look at their journey and they'll use concepts of um, obscurity or addiction or, or poverty or, or maybe the shackles of a very you know, strict religious home or, or some kind of identity that's imposed upon you from the outside and your you know, true self was pushed down. There's something that they had to be saved from, rescued from, broken out of in a sense. And then they describe salvation came to them. But it's not Jesus, it's that they looked within, right? And they found their their true self, or they were able to throw off the shackles of tradition or family or uh, religion to experience greater freedom. And they learned to trust themselves, and uh, they they worked harder, and they they made it in the world, and they can rest in, you know, who you really are and not what others tell you you should be. And Or maybe it's, you know, based around some kind of talent that they have or ability. Uh, They were, you know, a, a musician or an athlete, and they wanted to make it, and no one believed in them, and so they... They, they worked harder and then they made it from obscurity to fame. And then they sat on Kelly Clarkson's couch and talked on daytime television about their story. And we all go, wow, like that's, you know, amazing. Or have you heard kind of stories like that? Stories we tell, a narrative that looks something like that. Or if you think about some of the movies that you love, they'll have this sort of redemptive arc, redemptive narrative in them that takes these Christian ideas of redemption and salvation and yet changes the way the questions are answered. I point all this out because I think it's fascinating to see that everyone knows that, you know, there's something wrong in the world with themselves, with the world at large. We, we need redemption. We need freedom. We need salvation. We need to, to break out of whatever it is that we're stuck in. And even if secular people wouldn't have the, the categories, the biblical categories to think through all that, there are these deep senses that they have of these needs. but they answer the question differently. And so they say the story needs a hero, but in you know, the secular salvation narrative, who's the hero? Well, it's, it's you. You know, I mean, you gotta figure it out and, and work harder and, and make it. And so realize how the cross of Christ confronts both the ancient and the modern view of salvation. To the ancients to say, hey, the biggest problem you have isn't out there. It's not some conquering army. It's not the Romans. It's actually your sin that separates you from a holy God. And you need to be forgiven. And the only way to be forgiven is through the death of Jesus on your behalf. And in his name, you can be justified and made alive again. And to the modern world, I'll say, yes, you need to be saved. But the way to be saved is not to look to yourself It's to look away from yourself to the cross. The story has a hero, yes, but the hero isn't you. The hero is Jesus. And he died for you and he rose again to take your sin. You couldn't save yourself. And so just take that burden off of your shoulders to be everything for yourself and figure it out yourself. And allow Christ's work, excuse me, allow yourself to rest in Christ's work through simple faith in him. And it's in him that we can be forgiven. And it's in him that we can find fullness of life. And it's in him that we can find true freedom and true joy. So the cross leads us 
to rethink glory, to rethink salvation, and to rethink God himself. We talked about this last week briefly. What is God like? What's the picture we have of God in our minds? Many of us have an inaccurate picture of God that's not shaped by the scriptures or who God says he is, but shaped by culture or our own assumptions or ideas or experiences. So who is God and what is he like? Is he cold and distant? Is he uninterested in you and your pain? Is he exacting and demanding? The cross shows us what God is like. The cross shows us that God himself is willing because of his love for us to die for us. The scriptures tell us this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.10. We all know the verse John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Because of his great love for us, Ephesians 2 says, God who is rich in mercy, he's rich in mercy. Because of his great love for us, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Romans tells us at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely it says, well, anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross shows us the love of God for us. He loves us and he was willing then to go to the cross for us. So here is a God who loves you, who invites you to come to him, who made a way for you to come to him. You've been cleansed and forgiven and adopted into the family of God, not through your performance and not through jumping through the hoops and not through earning it and making sure the good scales outweigh the bad scales at the end of all things. No, but only through the righteousness of Christ, freely given to you through faith, if you would believe and trust. And so friends, this morning, as we, as we look to the cross, uh, I pray that this simple truth that you've heard before would be uh, giving you a, a renewed sense of awe, of joy, of gratitude, of rest because of who God is and what he's done. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we look to you and your cross and the, the simple truth of verse 18, and there they crucified him. And we reflect this morning, God, on all that it means, your glory and your goodness on display as we look to the cross. And you are lifted up and you draw all men to yourself. You invite us to come and believe and, and kneel before the cross. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for dying for us. We put our faith in you. And Lord, I just think uh, this morning, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not looked to you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, who has not repented and believed, who has not put their faith in you as Savior, that they would do so now. 
that they would cast themselves on your mercy and love displayed on the cross, that they would find joy and life and rest in your salvation. Not that they have to be everything for themselves, but you have died for them. You are their righteousness, their justification. Lord, I pray if you're moving on anyone's heart now that they would simply uh, look to you. That they'd ask for forgiveness for their sins before you and, and commit themselves to you as Lord and Savior. And if anyone here is, is uh, in that place needing to, to pray that prayer, come to the Lord. I, uh, I would love to visit with you after, after the service right up front. So Lord Jesus, we love you. And we sing to you now in your name. Amen.